the Dateline, San Diego, California. The scene was San Diego Superior Court. Two men were on trial for armed robbery. And the prosecutor had one key witness who could give testimony of, of seeing these uh, men involved in the, the crime. And after some of the preliminary questioning was out of the way, the prosecutor began to hone his questions down. You were at the scene of the robbery? Yes, answered the witness. Did you see the vehicle leave at a high rate of speed? Yes, I did. Did you observe the occupants of that vehicle? Yes, I did. And then the prosecutor in that booming prosecutor's voice honed in on what would be the key question. Are those two men in this courtroom today? And at that moment, the two defendants raised their hands, sealing their fate in the eyes of the jury. (laughs) Not the most brilliant of criminal minds, for sure. When it comes to guilt, there's times that all of us have to raise our hands, don't we? Guilty. I did it. I own it. I'm the one. I'm the guy. I'm the gal. I'm the one. The reality is that every one of us is going to deal with guilt in our lives. And the only question really is how. How will we deal with this reality of guilt? As we continue this series of messages on amazing grace that we started last week, our, our goal is to kind of just spend some time looking at this, this multifaceted jewel of, of grace. And the desire is that the more that we look into grace, the more that we understand God's amazing grace, the more we'll, we'll be uh, overwhelmed by it, the more we'll appreciate it, the more it will be real and operative uh, in our lives. And so what I want us to do this morning is just think about the relationship between guilt and grace. And to do so, I want to just begin with a very simple question, that is, what is guilt in the first place? And when we think about guilt, what what are we talking about exactly? And my guess is that for most of us in the room, when we hear guilt, when we think about guilt, we almost immediately go to a feeling. I feel guilty, or they laid a guilt trip on me, or whatever it may be. But very often when we're talking about about guilt, we're we're talking about a a feeling, a feeling that that the psalmist uh, kind of described with these words. Uh, Check them out there if you would. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. And there may be times in your life where you have felt that heavy burden. And you felt the burden of guilt. And very often when we feel that, we're primarily talking about a feeling. And I don't deny for a moment that guilt has a lot of feelings associated with it. But what I want to kind of stretch your thinking on just a little bit this morning is, when we think about guilt, guilt is not primarily about a feeling. Guilt we need to begin to see is a warning light. Guilt is a warning light indicating to us that something is wrong. Something needs attention. It's kind of like a warning light on the dashboard of your car, right? 
I mean, if you just kind of say, well, that's a pretty light, and I've never seen that before, and you just keep on driving and you ignore it, you're headed for trouble eventually, right? I mean, that warning light is telling you something needs attention. And that's, that's what guilt can do and should do in our lives. Guilt is a signal. It's a warning light that there is something in our life that needs attention. But as soon as I say that, immediately I want you to be aware that just because that warning light's going off doesn't necessarily mean in and of itself that we are guilty, because there are, if we can put it in two very broad categories this morning, at least two different kinds of guilt. And we'll just begin and call them genuine guilt. Genuine guilt is guilt that we need to own. It's that when we have done something to, to, to harm ourselves, uh, to harm others, to, to hurt uh, the heart of God himself. And Scripture is filled with examples of, of genuine guilt. Uh, I think of when the, the uh, apostles uh, led by Peter were proclaiming that, that first message of the New Testament church and the crowd that was listening. And Acts 2 records these words. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They they understood at that moment that, that they were guilty, that they were guilty before a holy and righteous God. They understood that they they were in trouble, and so they're crying out, what do we need to do? How do we address this? How do we fix this? Brothers, what shall we do? They were experiencing genuine guilt. And there are times, going back to our courtroom, that all of us have to raise our hand and say, guilty. I'm guilty. I said that. I did that. I didn't say that. I didn't do that. I'm guilty. It is a genuine guilt. I have engaged in behavior or not engaged in behavior in such a way that it is harmed or hurt myself, others, or hurt the heart of God. I am genuinely guilty. But there's a whole other category of guilt that we'll just call false guilt. False guilt. And this is, this is guilt. This is where we can experience feelings of guilt, but we may not have actually done anything that was wrong, if you will. In fact, as Jesus warned his followers, there will be people who will try to make you feel guilty. They will try to persecute a case against you. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He was trying to prepare them for what was to come. That there are people in all of our lives, we will encounter them along the way, that will uh, try to take us on a guilt trip, if you will. They will try to make us feel guilty because we did not live up to their expectations. We, we did not do what they wanted us to do when they, when they wanted us to do it, or, or, we, or we chose to do something they didn't want us to choose to do, or whatever it might be. And, and so we, we, we can carry around with us this false guilt. Dr. Paul Turnier put, puts it this way, false guilt is that which comes as a result of judgments and suggestions of men. It, it, it's, not, it's not what God is doing in convicting, but it's, it's, it's some feelings of guilt that we're carrying around, often with its roots 
in human beings and their sometimes warped expectations. Now, let me just camp here for just a moment because this is what I have found in walking alongside people for many years, that there are a lot of people, including an awful lot of people in the church, who are carrying around some false guilt. There are people, particularly if you have experienced some level of abuse in your life, that very often people carry with them out of those experiences some false guilt. Some of you have maybe had somebody in your life, a significant person that had some perfectionist tendencies. And to this day, there's a part of you that feels you'll never be good enough. You'll never measure up. And you carry with you uh, just a, kind of a low-grade guilt fever almost all the time. And see, one of the reasons you need to experience God's amazing grace is you need God's grace to help you get past your past. Because you're not going to be free to be the person God's called you to be in the present, to do the things that he wants you to do in and through you in the future until you get past your past. And for some of us, that includes dealing with some false guilt. You say, okay, Jeff, now, now you really got me confused. <laughs> I mean, guilt is not primarily a feeling. It's a warning light. And there's genuine guilt and there's false guilt. Uh, how do you tell the difference? I mean, how do I know? How do I begin to know if this is genuine guilt, something I need to address in the presence of God, or a false guilt that I may need to address in, in, in an entirely different way? Well, that's probably uh, several counseling sessions or at least a sermon series or something, but let me, let me at least give you three thoughts uh, to begin with. How do I tell the difference? Ask just very simply, where's the focus? Is the primary focus on people or on God? Is the primary focus on people or on God? Is it, as I begin to examine that, and, and hopefully this will drive me into the presence of God, but as I examine this in the presence of God, is this really about, about a clear teaching of God's Word where I violated? Is it about, a, about a, a clear principle or precept from God's Word that I have violated? Or is it about maybe somebody's expectation that they've heaped upon me? Now, please don't, don't read too much into this. Don't go too far with this because very often God uses people to be conduits of his convicting work in our life, doesn't he? Uh, so you go back to Nathan going before David, or you go to uh, Peter in that message we just saw from Acts 2. He was the, the, the human delivery point. Paul uh, confronted Peter, Peter uh, before Ananias and Sapphira. All throughout Scripture, God uses us in one another's lives. So very often he may use people to bring that conviction. So just because it was first brought up to, to your attention by a person doesn't mean it's automatically false guilt, but it means what is the primary driver of this? Is the focus primarily on somebody's expectations, or is it primarily on something that God has spoken? Is, is this warning light going off and the feelings I have and the thoughts that are unpacked around it, is this something vague, or is this something very specific? 
The enemy of your soul delights in, in painting with a broad brush and using very vague language at times. And so there, there may be things that, that you have those messages reverberating around you know, in your brain that you'll, you'll, you, who do you think you are? You'll never be good enough. You'll never be good enough for your parents. You're never going to measure up as a spouse. Or you're, you're, you're not a good enough parent to your child. Or you're, you're, just, you're just a loser. Or you've blown it too much. And it's these broad brush strokes. It's, it's very vague. When God's Holy Spirit is at work, He knows how to put His finger. He gets very specific with us. Jeff, you said that in... That was a misrepresentation. You need to go back and make that right. It, you, you acted in this way, and that was, that was just pure selfishness. You need to address that. You need to go apologize. God's Holy Spirit begins to be very specific with us around some things. You can begin to distinguish genuine and false, vague or specific. One other, is this primarily about just feelings of guilt or is it about the condition of guilt? So what does that mean? It, sometimes we just have these feelings. But is it more than a feeling? Is it about this is a condition that I am, that I am, I am, I am under this sentence. I am rightfully declared guilty in this because I have specifically done something or said something that's brought harm to myself, harm to others, or hurt the heart of God. And so there are things that I, I am under the condition. I am guilty. Raise my hand. It is me. It's not primarily just about feelings of guilt. So as I begin to understand, guilt is this warning light. It's this warning light that tells me something's not right, and it needs to be addressed. And as hopefully that drives me to seek God, hopefully God can begin to help me to understand, is this, is this a genuine guilt? Is this a convicting work of the Holy Spirit, or is this a false guilt? And I begin to think, is this, is this from people? Is it God? Is it vague? Is it specific? Is it primarily about feelings or is it about a condition of guilt? But then that leads to the next question, and that is, what do I do with that? <laughs> I mean, when I have this guilt, how do I deal with that? Well, there are some really inadequate ways that most of us have been dealing with guilt. And if it'll help you at all, it is the same ways that human beings have inadequately been dealing with guilt since the Garden of Eden. In fact, as I want to take you back to Genesis 3. Genesis 3, where we kind of have that, that first encounter, with, if you will, with guilt. Maybe Many of you may remember in Genesis 3, we have the, that rebellion of Adam and Eve, uh, taking the forbidden fruit. We have the, the fall uh, recorded in the first a few verses of chapter 3. Let me pick it up in verse 7. This is after they have taken the fruit and eaten it. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Now let's pause right there. Right there in just those few verses there in the garden, we see some inadequate ways of handling guilt that many of us still engage in today. When when that warning light's going off, this is sometimes how we respond. Sometimes we respond in shame. Shame. So what are they doing? They're guilty. And so they they, they try to cover up. Sometimes we try to cover up in our shame. We feel ashamed, and so we want to we cover it up. But the problem is that doesn't help. It doesn't lead to healing. And not only were they engaging in shame, but they were hiding. They were hiding. They hid themselves. They begin to distance themselves from one another. They begin to, to hide and distance themselves from God. That often can happen in our lives when we have guilt and we're not dealing with it well. It will tend to distance us from other people. It will tend to distance us from God because we'll, we'll withdraw, we'll hide, we'll, we'll kind of cover up in our shame, and that creates distance in our relationships. It may... Fi- we may feel a little relief from the feelings of guilt because we're covering up or we're withdrawing, hiding, but it does not get to the root. The warning light is still blinking. And then one of the favorites that we've used through the years, originating there in the Garden of Eden, is blame. Blame, right? This, this is my favorite one in this passage, right? Adam, what'd you do? God, that woman that you gave to me, by the way, God, just want to make that perfectly clear, right? I mean, she's the reason, right? Eve, what did you do? God, that serpent, by the way, you're the creator of all things. That serpent, that's the one that did, right? And we, sometimes we do that with our guilt. We put the finger out there. They made me. They did this. If it wasn't for this condition or this circumstance or that person, I would not have had to. It's usually a have to for us. I would not have had to respond in that way. I would not have had to do that. They made me this way. They made me angry. Shame. Hiding. Blame. There's one more. It's actually in the very next chapter as sin begins to permeate the human race. It goes to the next generation with Cain and Abel. And we find there an example of anger, of anger. And so in chapter 4, they're putting those offerings before the Lord. And the one is the acceptable. Cain is, is, is rose up in anger against his brother Abel. And he killed him. Abel hadn't done anything to him. But he was, he was angry, he was, he was guilty, and in his guilt, he, he redirected that toward anger, and he took that anger out, and he ended up directing it toward his brother. Instead of dealing with his guilt, he exploded in anger toward his brother. Now, I know that nobody in this room ever engages in shame, hiding, blame, or anger. But you know some people that do, right? You know some people that operate this way. And so there is this anger. And that anger gets, gets directed. 
Do you, you do realize, right? I know you do, but it'll make me feel better to say it. That sometimes when somebody's angry with you, it's not about you. Sometimes it's about them. Sometimes it's about what they've got going on in their life. And you just happen to be in the pathway of a very inadequate way of dealing with it. And that's anger. That's anger. Now we could probably add to this list, but that's a pretty good start. What these things have in common is they don't work. They don't help. They don't lead to healing. God has a different way of handling anger. God's way of handling anger can be summed, or, or guilt, excuse me. God's way of handling guilt can be summed up in the word grace. And that's why we just keep coming back to this amazing grace. It is God's grace that is the, the antidote, the way to handle our guilt. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Christ came not not to condemn. We already stood condemned. We were already guilty. He came to rescue. He came to restore. He came to renew. That's why John, in one of his letters, was writing, and by the way, he's writing to believers, and he writes these words, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that, that God desires to bring a cleansing into our lives. So how do, I, how do I experience God's amazing grace for the guilt in my life? Well, let me, let me give you three thoughts, and then I, then I want to kind of try to make this hopefully memorable and practical for you. The first thought is I appropriate that grace by confession. Confess your sins. Here's the reality. Every one of us, we're either going to cover up or we're going to face up. We're either going to cover up our sin, try to do it with the hiding or shame or guilt or anger or blame, or we're going to face up. We're going to own it. We're going to say, God, let me deal with this. Now, let's look at this, this next verse. It talks about our confession, first of all, has to be to God. Our confession has to be to God. Oh, God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Now, let me, let me clarify, because sometimes when we, we, we hear confession, we, we, we kind of get it mixed up. Confession at its root, particularly when it's before God, is to speak the same. It is to speak in agreement with God. It's to see it exactly how God sees it, to see my sin exactly the same way that God. I, some of you have heard me do this teaching for years, but, but listen, when you're coming before God, it's not like you're going to give him more information. Confessing before God is not saying, well, God, I know you don't know this, but I'm here to tell you I stole the cookies out of the cookie jar, right? No, no, no. Did you see what it said? the, The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. They're not hidden from God. 
He, he knows. He knows. Confession is not about giving God information. It's about agreeing with God. It's about speaking the same. It's about getting, if you will, on the same page with God so that we can experience His grace. Confession begins to God. But that confession may also need to include another person. Sometimes part of the healing, sometimes part of appropriating God's grace is confession to another person. That's why James encouraged his readers, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. It's been said that you're only as sick as your secrets. And there are times where if we're going to experience the fullness of God's grace, we can't just settle for talking to God. Sometimes we need to experience God's grace through the body of Christ. We need to experience his grace through some other person. Now, that doesn't mean that we all need to come up here to the microphone and start confessing every sin to everybody. But it does mean that there may be some key people in your life, a safe person, that you need to say, I, I need to be honest. I, can I be transparent? Can I unpack this in your presence? Can I be real? For, for some, quite honestly, maybe because of the nature of what you're dealing with, maybe, maybe the best route to begin that would be through a, through a trusted counselor, maybe just somebody to enter into that professional relationship with as a way to, to begin to experience that. But if I'm going to experience God's grace for my guilt... It must include confession to God and quite often to another person. But it doesn't stop there. When I confess, and what will empower me to confess, if you will, is to trust God's character. To trust in the character of God. Let's go back and revisit that First John passage. If we confess our sins, notice what it says next about his character. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that we can trust in God's character. Why can I come clean before God? Why can I bring all of my baggage? Why can I not hide and not blame and not direct anger at other people? Because of of his character because he is faithful and just. He is the one who desires to cleanse. So the writer of Hebrews encourages us to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, fully assured of the character of God with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. If I'm going to deal with my guilt well, I have to trust in his character, faithful, just. I have to operate in a faith that he desires not to condemn but to cleanse. And then I have to appropriate that and accept God's forgiveness. Accept God's forgiveness. As many folks have wrestled with guilt through the years, they found such encouragement and such an example in the 32nd Psalm. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, 
and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Notice that. God, I, I came clean before you, and you forgave. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. There was an acceptance. That's why we talked about the difference between do and done last week in this series. Some of us are still stuck on that performance plan, that if I've blown it, I have to do some things to make up. If I've done this, I have to do like twice as many good things over here. I have to pay money or whatever. I have to, to do something. But the only way to deal with my guilt is to come clean before God, trusting in his character, and then to accept not what I can do to make it right, but accept the forgiveness that he offers because of what he has done for me in Jesus Christ. For some of you, maybe out of this morning, you just need to spend some time with these verses from the 103rd Psalm as a part of just accepting God's forgiveness. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. (laughs) Maybe some of you just need to live with that verse this week. God, by faith and trusting in your character, I'm going to take you at your word. You do not repay according to our iniquities. Thank you, God. Thank you, Father, that that your steadfast love is so great. And as far as the east is from the west, you desire to remove our transgressions from us. So we accept God's forgiveness. When is guilt good? He said, Jeff, guilt's this warning light. Is it good? Can be. Can be very, very good. Guilt will be good if there are two things in place. The first is, it must come from the right source. It must come from the right source. Not the manipulations of people, not the whispers of the enemy, but the the convicting work of God's Holy Spirit. It must come from the right source. It must come from God may come through people, may come in different ways, may come from a verse of Scripture, but it comes ultimately from the convicting work of God's Holy Spirit. It comes from the right source, but it also must lead to the right outcome. It must lead to the right outcome. If we try to deal with even legitimate guilt coming from the right source in inadequate ways, then it hasn't done us a whole lot of good. But if we are dealing with genuine guilt coming from the right source, and we deal with it God's way according to his grace, then it can be good. But I want to give you this statement, and then I want to teach you something. God not only wants to forgive you and free you from your guilt, but so much more. He wants you to be used and useful. He wants to move in your life and use your life in fresh, new ways. It's not just about taking care of your guilt, but it's about transforming your life. And this is what I want to do with a few moments that we have remaining. Um, I've taken some good-natured ribbing since Wendy's memorial service, because one of the things I mentioned in the, in the eulogy was that 
one of the things we just tried to do through the years, just to, to do some things that we could do together, is I surprised her with some dancing lessons. And so we, we, we just did dancing lessons for, for several months. And, and some of you are thinking, I didn't know Baptist preachers could dance. And, and, and the truth is, still not very well. But we had a lot of fun uh, with, with the dancing lessons. But here's the thing. When it comes to guilt, every one of us dances Every one of us dances. Some of us do a bunny hop. Some of us do a Texas two-step. But what I would like to teach you today is a better way to dance. I want to teach you how to do the gospel waltz or a Christian waltz, if you will. It's been called different things through the years. A waltz is about three, four times. So it's three steps, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, all right? And if you don't have all three steps you're not waltzing. And if you don't have all three steps in this Christian waltz, this gospel waltz, you're not going to experience all that God wants to do, not only in removing guilt, but in moving you beyond guilt to the life that he's called you to. So that we've included a diagram in your note-taking guide. There's lots of different versions, and some of them use some different wording of this gospel waltz. But this is one we use in training some of our uh, journey group uh, leaders, some material that we've, uh, uh, we, we've come across. And I just kind of want to walk you through this, this one, two, three, one, two, three. So that we, we begin to experience this guilt, this convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And if you can start at the top there, and I don't know how well you can see it on the screen, but we've tried to include it uh, in your note-taking guide. And maybe the first question is, how does my failure here show my need to repent? So that I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing this convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And so I have to begin to unpack that in his presence. Uh, what is my chief temptation here? What is my flesh? How, how is my flesh showing itself here? And think about pus. Think about, yeah, I know that kind of sounds gross, like infection and stuff, but it is an infection. It, pride, unbelief, selfishness. That very often one of those three is, is driving some of our behavior uh, of sin. How do I love to disobey in this area? How am I worried? How am I angry? How am I fearful in this? And then very specifically, how is the Holy Spirit convicting me of sin? Now this is the the first step in that gospel waltz. Repent. I want to turn from this. I, I no longer want to w- walk in this way. I no longer want to engage in this behavior. I no longer want to leave this out of my life. But God, I want to turn from, from this selfishness. I want to turn from this pride. I want to w- turn from an unbelief. And I want to turn and walk in a new way. That's just the first step. Repentance. Now, remember a moment ago I said there are a lot of us that when we dance with guilt, we do the bunny hop. And the bunny hop just can stay on one of these steps, and very often this step. And so if you just bunny hop with guilt, you kind of say, I'm sorry, God, I'm never going to do that again. I'm sorry, God, I'm never going to do that again. God, I'm very sorry. I mean it. I'm sincere. I'm crying. I'm repentant. I'm never going to do that again. But but you stay there. It's a one step, and you never go any further. You've got to keep moving to do the waltz you got to move from repentance to belief, to belief. 
And, and I'm going to just encourage you to write maybe down at the bottom of, of the paper there under belief uh, two words, appreciate and appropriate. Appreciate and appropriate. So that I be, have to come to a point where as I turn, I turn to the grace of God and I appreciate the, the goodness of God. I appreciate the provision that God has made for me in Jesus Christ. And I begin to appropriate that personally in my life. And so I need to ask as I'm turning in repentance, how is my sin causing me to be desperate for Christ? Otherwise, I'm just doing the bunny hop. But is is there this desperation for Christ? And I turn to him. How does Christ love me here? We've talked about preach the gospel to yourself every single day. Every single day I have to come back and remind myself of the love of God that is not based on my performance. How can I rest on Christ? Not on my performance, not on my ability to, to make more good deeds than bad. How do I rest on Christ and his provision? What do I need from him? What do I need from him now? Forgiveness, healing, wisdom, strength, encouragement. What do I need from him? How can I feed on him? How can I appropriate that grace? How is the Holy Spirit creating faith in Christ in me? So that I I move from repentance, but not only repentance, but now I'm moving into belief. I remind myself of the gospel, of the, the unfailing love of God, of the resources that are mine in Christ Jesus. I experience his forgiveness and then his enabling grace to move me to that third step, and that is the step of obedience, which leads to that question in the box. How is faith in Christ strengthening me to be more holy? God doesn't doesn't just leave you there. Remember, it's not a bunny hop, repent, repent, repent. But it's also not just a Texas two-step that says, repent, believe, repent, believe, repent, believe. Because if you just get those two steps, you ultimately end up in some sort of license. Because you just, you, you never move beyond it. You never move into holiness or godliness. But you just kind of, I, 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 I repent, forgive me. I repent, forgive me. I repent, forgive me. But you need that third step to move on to a life of obedience. How am I called to obey in this situation? What action grows naturally out of Christ's work in my life? What means of grace can I practice here? Scripture, prayer, fellowship, other. How is the Holy Spirit prodding me on toward love and good deeds? Now, there's another Texas two-step that sometimes people do here, and that is repent, obey, repent, obey, repent, obey. God, I'm sorry, I'm never going to do that, I'm never going to do that again. And God, from now on, I'm going to obey you because I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to walk in that way again. That ends up being legalism because it bypasses the grace of God. It bypasses the appreciation and the, the appropriation of the grace of God. When it comes to guilt, don't do a bunny hop. Don't do a Texas two-step. You got to waltz. One, two, three. One, two, three. Repent, believe, obey. Repent, believe, obey. And when you take that, those steps, repent, believe, obey, you experience not only the cleansing of God from guilt, but the empowering of God to live for his glory and for your good. Repent, believe, obey. You say, Jeff... What if I do that and I mess up again? You keep dancing. 
Repent, believe, obey. Repent, believe, obey. One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, three. Don't get stuck on a bunny hop. Don't settle for a Texas two-step that'll lead you to license or legalism. You gotta take the waltz. One, two, three. One, two, three. Repent, believe, obey. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, thank you. Thank you that you have not left us in our, in our guilt. Father, thank you that you give us example after example in your word of, of those men and women who didn't get stuck in their failure. They didn't get stuck in their past. They rejected false guilt, but they dealt with genuine guilt. Father, thank you. Thank you that you use imperfect people. Thank you, Father, that you've given us a way, a way to respond to you in repentance and belief and obedience. And Father, today I, I want to pray very specifically. Father, I pray today for some in this room that today, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day, Father, for them to exchange trying to deal with, with guilt in their own way by minimizing it or in shame or cover up or running away or blaming others. Today is the day for them to come clean before you. Today is the day that you're drawing them to a saving faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, as Lord, as, as forgiver, as friend, as leader of their life. Lord, I pray that before they leave this room, they, they will begin that, that walk, that walk with you. They'll hear your call to repent and turn from pride, turn from unbelief, turn from selfishness, and turn to you. And Lord, that they would place their faith and trust in the finished work of Christ Jesus. And that your Holy Spirit would indwell them and empower them to walk in new pathways of obedience. Father, I, I pray for many in this room right now. Father, perhaps, perhaps this morning, Father, just since there's some that have walked into this room with some false guilt. Lord, would you help them to shake that dust off their feet? Would you give them the wisdom to distinguish between your voice and other voices in their head, perhaps from their past? Would you help them to reject, reject the manipulation of people so that they can walk in obedience to their master? Father, I pray right now, trusting that your Holy Spirit is dealing very specifically with many of us in the room, that in love and kindness you're placing your finger on a very uncomfortable place, but it's the place where healing must take place. Father, I just, I pray right now. Father, I pray, Father, that you would just help some folks to waltz with you this morning, to repent, to believe, and to obey. As you just continue to sit before the Father, I, I'm just going to ask you just to be at peace.